Good morning. Good to see everybody today, and we're glad that you are here. Uh, this is a time where our kids are headed out for children's church, so they'll head out that direction uh, to the other building. There's also a nursery over there, an attended nursery, if you, if you need that, or a cry room in the back as well. Uh, and we do hope you pick up a, a bulletin, a prayer sheet. There's all kinds of uh, good stuff, uh, lots of events coming up, and also lots of people we need to be remembering in, in prayer. So make sure, uh, if you didn't get one of those on, on the way in, that you get one as you leave. Uh, one other note about class today, before we get into our, our lesson for today, I mentioned this in the midweek bulletin, but we're going to do um, some more kind of combined class discussions. Uh, and, and so we're going into the topic of, I'd said giving in the, in the email, and it is going to be giving, but I know for some people, if you say we're going to talk about giving, there's already kind of a set agenda in mind of what we expect for that conversation to be like in a, in a church. Um, and what we want to do is really have a conversation around giving. Uh, there'll be some of that that we kind of present later about kind of have a handout of information similar to what we did with the, with the baptism uh, class that we did, because uh, we know that there may be questions that people have about giving. Um, but we want to, to really have a conversation about that amongst us as people. This will be similar. You know, we, we had classes um, around the topic of baptism in connection with the, this last series that we did. Um, and these conversations are really going to go back to a couple of series prior to that on a series that, that I preached on money. And so this is sort of a follow-up to that. And uh, so I hope that you'll come and join us today. I'll start with the, kind of some thoughts about a scripture, but then I'm just going to ask some questions and we're going to talk um, uh, about giving, about money, about how we approach those types of things. And so I hope that you'll join us. We'll do that today. Um, and the next week, we'll, we'll kind of pause. We're going to have a teacher's meeting at our class time next week and some other different stuff next week. And then we'll come back to this conversation uh, the week after that. So I hope that you'll, you'll join us uh, for those conversations. All right. So this morning, though, uh, we're going to start uh, with, um, well, before I get there, uh, you may have noticed in, in some of our, our songs this morning and, and even last week, there's kind of been this prevalent theme of, of storms, of storm imagery. It's in a lot of our songs. <laughs> uh, there's this imagery of, of storms and, and what do we do in times of storms? Where do we turn to? Where, what, what do we anchor to in, in stormy weather and when the storms of life come? It's kind of be a, been a theme of these songs that kind of picks up with this theme of where we find Saul uh, over the course of 1 Samuel. So this is where today we're going to begin with a fill-in-the-blank quiz. And so you can call this answer out if you know the answer to this fill-in-the-blank, all right? So here we go. Desperate times call for... We all knew it. All right. We're done. <laughs> um, all right. It's Chris. <laughs> uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. We all know that. We've heard that. Dozens, hundreds, thousands of times in our lives. If, if we haven't said it ourselves, we've probably said something similar or communicated something similar, if not directly in words, then certainly with our actions. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But what I want to ask us to consider today is, is that accurate? <laughs> uh, I know it's, it's what fits in the blank. We all know that. It's the answer that goes in the blank. But is it really the best answer for that blank? Uh, are desperate measures really the best response to desperate times? Uh, or is there another way, or are there multiple other ways that we could think about that? 
So we're going to keep that question kind of in our minds this morning um, as we read about Saul. If you want to turn, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 28 today. And if you were with us last week, last week we were in 1 Samuel 16, so we've skipped about 12 chapters. And I'm not going to do a whole lot of kind of recapping what goes on there, because basically what has just happened for 12 chapters is Saul has been on an all-consuming quest to kill David. That's those 12 chapter, chapters. We have David and Goliath, uh, and then we have Saul trying to kill David. <laughs> uh, that's basically what happens, which, if you were with us last week, may seem as a little bit of a surprise, uh, because Saul, last week we find Saul is just beaten down with this evil spirit. He's uh, perhaps depressed or just in a foul mood, and nothing can bring him out of it except for his company with David. And when David comes and is with him and plays music for him, Saul feels better. And then it's two chapters later that Saul gets jealous of David. He has some misplaced anger towards David. And so he tries to pin David to a wall with his spear, is what the the narrator in 1 Samuel tells us. And that begins this ongoing quest that just consumes everything that Saul is to kill David. Uh, And to make matters worse, just imagine the tension that exists within this relationship then, because David is the heir to Saul's throne, Uh, David also ends up becoming incredibly, incredibly close and best friends with Saul's son. He marries one of Saul's daughters. And so if you think your Thanksgiving table is awkward, Thanksgiving dinner here was just unimaginably tense. (laughs) Um, At one point, Saul even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, for siding with David. Uh, He puts to death a whole town of priests and their families because he thinks they are siding with David. This just becomes something that just consumes him. Uh, And so then we arrive now at 1 Samuel 28. At this point, David has fled because he's like, this guy, he's just going to kill me at some point. I can't run forever. He's fled. And now Saul stands facing an invading army with nowhere to turn. He's got his own army with him, but in some ways he's more alone than he's ever been. And and he is just looking out thinking, what in the world am I going to do now? So that's where we're going to pick up. 1 Samuel 28, uh, verse 3 is where we're going to pick up the story. And right at the beginning here, uh, the the storyteller, the narrator, throws out a couple of just like quick little hits, quick facts that seem to be just completely out of place in the story. They have nothing to do with what has immediately preceded this, uh, but they're going to be some important uh, foreshadowing facts for this story that's going to come up. So 1 Samuel 28, picking up in verse 3, it says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. So Samuel's dead and everyone knows it. This is important. And then the second fact, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. Those would seem to have nothing to do with each other and nothing to do with anything that's come before it. But the narrator wants us to know these two things before getting into this story. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army... He was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or or prophets. 
uh, that middle one there, Urim or whatever, is, is basically a, a spiritual exercise that would have been engaged kind of by priests. Uh, and so remember, Paul has been, I mean, Saul has basically decimated all the priests in Israel. So now he's kind of turning back to some of these things and being like, hey, none of these things are answering. Well, you know, <laughs> you've made some mistakes, dude. Uh, Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Which is what you would expect a dead guy to say, right? If you, <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm just peaceful, I'm good. What in the world are you doing? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Uh, another important thing to remember here is that before Samuel's death, for a long time, these two had been estranged. They'd been cut off because, of, again, of Saul's decisions and mistakes and everything he's done. And so now Samuel's got to be thinking, like, in addition to the fact that he's dead, right, just, you, like, you didn't want to talk to me when I was alive. Why, why are you trying to call me up now that I'm dead? Which Samuel basically says, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Remember that word, neighbor. We're going to come back to that at the end. To one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Uh, all right, so if you've been with us for this series, uh, you may have felt cheated that we haven't really gotten into any good ghost stories until today. So today's for you. This is a real, genuine ghost story <laughs> uh, that probably leaves us with a lot of questions, right? Um, is this the type of thing this woman typically did? <laughs> uh, is she just out there and indoor just calling up spirits? Um, but it seems important that even she is surprised when Samuel comes up. <laughs> uh, now, it leaves a little open to interpretation. You could either say that she's surprised that it's actually Samuel that comes up, or she's just surprised that this worked. Uh, and my guess is it's the latter. 
she's been someone who, de- who relies on deception and illusion and kind of sleight of hand. And now this guy comes and says, hey, bring up Samuel. So she's like, all right, cool, I'll make a few bucks. And then here comes this ghost. And oh, my goodness, what do I do with this now, right? Uh, my guess is this is a story that's pretty shocking to everyone around and that this is God kind of showing Saul some stuff through a dead guy. Um, lots of questions that could be asked about this story, lots of directions that we can go. But I think the thing that most stands out about it to me is that we find Saul, again, estranged from, from every other source of, of community, relationship, advice, counsel. Because of his own decisions, he has basically just moved away from all that. He's, he's now standing with, with nowhere to go. He tells Samuel, uh, I'm being invaded by the Philistines and God has departed from me. And it feels almost like the second one would be the one that would, that would fill you with more terror and fear, right? Uh, Saul knows what it is to be in battle. But now not only is he in battle, he's completely alone. That's something we kind of started setting up last week of, of this image of, of Saul as someone who's just lonely and on his own. And now that comes to just the full forefront now as he's standing on this battlefield completely alone. And terror filled his heart. And so I, I think to me that the main takeaway from this is that in that moment, in this moment of, of desperation, Saul turns to the very thing that he himself has forbidden in the land. Uh, and he's forbidden it uh, seemingly in keeping with God's desires and will. This is something uh, in the law. Back in Deuteronomy, God has forbidden spiritists and mediums and, and the acts that they would do in all of Israel. So with all of Saul's mistakes and shortcomings, he's still got a little bit of orthodoxy about him. <laughs> and he's forbidden these spiritists and mediums from, from practicing um, and engaging in these types of activities in Israel. And yet when push comes to shove, when he gets desperate, he turns to the very thing that he has forbidden. Saul is desperate. But I don't think he's necessarily, uh, obviously it seems, he's not desperate for God. He's desperate for a way out. He's desperate for self-preservation. And it seems that in this moment, what is the most important thing to Saul is, is having an answer or having somewhere to turn. Uh, he seems more concerned with just having an answer than he is with whoever it is that is giving that answer. The answer is more important to Saul than the source of the answer. And when that happens, you end up I wish it said witch in the story because the witch of Endor just sounds better. Um, and so when the answer matters more than the source, you end up visiting a witch in Endor, um, metaphorically or literally. And that's where Saul finds himself. And so we're at left with this question again. What do desperate times call for? They call, in many cases, we think, for desperate measures. And that's what Saul does. He turns to something that is forbidden. He turns to something that he himself knows he shouldn't be doing. Otherwise, he wouldn't be going in disguise at night. The spiritist, the medium, the witch, knows it's not something she should be doing. She says, you're just setting a trap for me, trying to get me killed. Everybody knows this isn't something we should be doing. But in a moment of desperation, it feels like the only place to turn. In times of desperation, we are tempted to look around 
and believe that things are so messed up, that relationships are so broken, that circumstances are so tight, that there is simply no good answers, no lights at the end of the tunnel, that we rationalize behavior that goes against our character and our morals and our values. In desperation, we lie, we manipulate, we offend, we cut corners, we sabotage relationships, we sacrifice our character at the altar of expediency, and we put aside discipline and exchange it for carelessness. And we justify it all in the name of desperate times. Uh, and I, I get, I, I understand that, that there are times in, in desperation that we would do things that we would not normally do in the course of kind of regular activity and, and actions. Uh, as I've been thinking about this this week, I shared my story of desperation last week, so I can't share that again. So if you were here last week, that was the beginning of last week. Uh, but as I've been thinking about desperate times this week, my mind keeps going back to, y'all remember the story uh, several years ago now at this point, of the guy who went hiking, got his arm caught between the rock and the wall and had to cut off his own arm? Right, that's like, if I'm thinking desperate times call for desperate measures, that's what I think of, right? Because that's not just like, that's not a normal Tuesday where you just decide to cut off your arm. That's a, that's a desperate or extreme measure. But it's a desperate measure that still realizes and is able to prioritize what is most important, right? The thing that is of the most value is preserving my, my life. And so if that means I've got to cut off my own arm, it's actually in keeping with a set of, of internal values and beliefs and morals to say, I'm going to do this thing that seems extreme in this moment, but it's because of what I know my values and priorities are in life. And, and so there are cases when things like that are true. But I think more often than not, we turn to a phrase like, desperate times call for desperate measures, in order to justify things that we know we really shouldn't be doing. But man, I'm, I'm desperate. I've got nowhere else to turn. And so I'm going to do this thing that I know I shouldn't be doing, that I know really isn't in my best interest, but it feels like the only thing that I can do. Saul believes that things are so bad, that defeat is so inedible, in, inevitable, that he must do what he knows to be wrong in order to bring out any type of good. And this is the great danger, I think, of pursuing desperate measures, that we end up convincing ourselves to act in ways that are not consistent with who we are. And so I, I've been reminded also of, of Psalm 23 that we went through kind of in detail at length a, a few Wednesday nights ago, if you were with us then, that in Psalm 23, uh, ironically, David, the other kind of main person in this book, says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, as one translation says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Listen to the three parts of that, that, that David knows there are going to be times of darkness and dark valleys. But what, what allows David to have no fear in those circumstances is, is remembering that God is with him. And what has seemed to be the last straw for Saul? He has completely lost contact with God. He says to Samuel, God has abandoned me. And that is ultimately what fills him with this fear. The lives of both Saul and David, the, the words of Psalm 23, our own experiences and lives are reminders that desperate times will come. There are going to be dark valleys. There are going to be situations that we don't feel equipped to handle. There may be crises in 
our homes, uh, in our families, in our jobs, in our faith. And all of those are opportunities to turn towards God and remember that God is with us and remember who we are in Christ instead of turning away from him. In Saul's story, we find he is most fearful, it seems, because he believes he is completely on his own. And it seems that David always is able to remember the opposite. And so what do desperate times call for then? I think we could put a lot of things in that blank if we were thinking of it in terms of, of what would truly benefit us the most. That they call for wisdom. They call for sober judgment. They call for boldness. They call for determination. They challenge us to resist fear and hold fast to a faithful peace. They challenge us to anchor ourselves in the hope of Christ in situations that seem hopeless. They challenge us to turn toward God and not away from Him, even if it seems as if God is silent. And they require us to remember that God is with us. But if there's one thing that we learn from Saul in this story, I think it's that desperate times challenge us and and require us to remember who we are, where our strength lies, and where our foundation is. Uh, This would be the perfect opportunity for Saul to just say, all right, God, I get it. Uh, I repent. This should be a moment of humility for Saul, right? Uh, And this would be the perfect time to turn back to God. But instead, he just turns further and further away. Uh, And I think there there are a couple of great ironies then in this story. One is that if you go all the way back to when Saul is anointed as king, he is anointed as king for the express purpose of, of delivering the Israelites from the Philistines. This is his charge. This is his mandate. This is his anointing. And now he gets to this point where the Philistine army is, you've got this kind of, this, this is the climactic battle in, in the kind of action movie, right? And here they come. They're coming at him. And this should be the time that, that Saul remembers his purpose and his anointing and his calling. And instead, he's just so afraid, he just goes looking for an answer anywhere he can find it. Uh, And the the other ironic part about that is that David, the guy he's trying to kill, never forgets that part of Saul's purpose and identity and calling. Uh, So in those 12 chapters that I referenced where Saul is trying to kill David, there are actually two instances uh, where David has perfect opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, One of them, Saul is using the restroom in a cave, and the other one, he's asleep. So if if you don't know those stories, those may pique your interest. You can go read them later. (laughs) Um, and in the one where, where Saul is, at least in the text, relieving himself in the cave, uh, David even sneaks up to him, cuts off an edge of his robe to show Saul later, look, I could have killed you and I didn't. Uh, and in each of those situations, David's people with him say to him, look, God has given your enemy into your hands. This is a sign. You should kill this guy. Life will be easier for all of us. We won't have to keep running You'll finally have your your place as as king. Life will just be easier if you just kill him. And look, God has done this. God has delivered him into your hands. This is God's will. You should do it. Uh, Because sometimes when we're stressed and in desperation, we can can export onto God what is actually our desires or, or intent, right? Hey, look, this happened. It must be what God wants me to do. That's what David's men try to get him to see. Each time they tell him that. But each time... David says, no, I can't lay a hand on God's anointed. But through the whole thing, even when Saul was trying to kill him, 
David never loses sight of Saul's calling and purpose and identity, even when Saul himself does. And, and David ends up making a lot of mistakes in his own life, as we all do. But he always seems to return to this idea of knowing his purpose, his calling, his identity, and remembering that God is with him. And if there's one thing that separates the two of them, I, I think it's that. Uh, he never forgets it in terms of who Saul is, and he never forgets it in terms of who he himself is in relation to God. And so I want to close with the psalm, another psalm this morning. This is Psalm 88. Um, and I want you to listen. Um, I think this, this sums up well, I think, what the difference is uh, between Saul and David. Psalm 88. Uh, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to hear my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do, the, do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your, faithlessness, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Uh, I think you can hear in there a lot of the feelings of Saul. That, that in many ways, this is the way Saul feels, right? Alone, isolated, darkness is my closest friend. You've taken everything from me. You are against me. But I think the difference between this psalm and what we see in Saul, between the attitude of David and the attitude of Saul, is that in those times when darkness is his only friend, Saul feels as if he has to go somewhere beyond, besides God for an answer. Uh, and in this psalm and in the life of David, what we see is that even in those darkest times, there's still this crying out to God. Um, that, that God can handle our cries of desperation. God can handle our times when we feel like, God, I just feel like you are against me. I feel like everything is against me. The only thing I can know to do is just cry out to you in desperation. It feels like you and the whole world are against me. Uh, but there's, there's still this crying out to God and connection to God and remembering who God is, that he will not leave us, and remembering our identity and our purpose and our calling in him. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of, of life in Christ for those of us who live this side of the cross, that we have this confidence, this hope, this endearing uh, hope and presence of the Spirit within us because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
and that we have this promise that God's Spirit is with us always and will not depart from us. And so even when it feels like darkness is our only friend, uh, may we cry out to God. When it feels like desperate measures are our only way out, may we remember who we are and that God is with us. Uh, This morning, we're going to come around the table and share in communion and remember this Jesus who gave his life for us and who offers his spirit to be with us um, through his resurrection. And so may we be reminded of these things this morning that are important to to our faith and to our identity. Um, And we're going to sing this song together uh, as we we sing and and desire to be strengthened in, in those reminders. And then we'll share in communion together this morning. So would you stand as we sing and then share in communion?
pray our prayer of confession together, and then we'll share in communion. So I'll pray the parts in white, and then together we'll pray uh, all the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.